a paradox. A paradox is, is a statement that can seem seemingly absurd and self-contradictory that can actually be true. Some of us, you say that your life is a paradox, isn't it? A paradox like this, you know, the more that you fail, the more likely you are to succeed. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound interesting? And at surface level, it seems uh, paradoxical. It seems like it couldn't be true. Uh, but as a matter of fact, it's simply what we call the law of averages, right? I mean, if you keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, eventually you're going to make a shot. Eventually you're going to get the job. Eventually you're going to get the date. Yeah, eventually she's going to say yes, right? Law of averages, eventually it's going to happen. Right? The more you fail, uh, the more likely you are to succeed. Uh, paradoxes are important, especially when it comes to the Christian faith, because there is a much more serious paradox, uh, one that you and I have to deal with uh, in order for us even to respond to the gospel. But even after we, we have responded to the gospel, this paradox is really important uh, because it guides the way that we think about God. It guides the way that you and I talk to people about God in the present world we live in. And even as we look at the text this morning, uh, in Matthew 2, which I hope you flipped there already, followed along as Pastor Evan was reading, but you can flip there to Matthew 2. Uh, but the paradox that we have to deal with is this, that the existence of evil in the world actually proves the existence of God. Doesn't that sound paradoxical, right? That we, uh, how could we who believe in an all-loving, omniscient, all-powerful creator God uh, believe that there can also be with that God of all omnipotence, with that, that sovereign God of the universe, there also be evil. But that is the question that we have to be prepared to answer, isn't it? And when we look at the text of Scripture, we see this relationship playing out in a very real way, just as real as the things that we see in the present day, this paradox of real evil existing with a real God. Now, this is important for the Christian faith because it's simply this, that knowing the relationship between God's sovereignty and the existence of evil is key to understanding the mission of Jesus. I want to say that again. You need to understand that knowing the relationship between God's sovereignty and the existence of evil is important for you to understand if you want to understand and know the reason why Jesus is here. And that's what we're going to look at here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Because what we have to do as Christians, if you call Compass Bible Church home, if you have turned from your sins, placed your trust into Christ, you have to, uh, with conviction, grasp God's sovereign purpose, particularly when we look at this text of preserving Jesus' life amid open opposition. We have to understand, why did God preserve Jesus' life as we look at the text? When it comes to the evil that was existing around him, when it comes to all of the bars and walls and depths, as the psalmist David would say, we're closing in around Jesus. Why did God see fit to preserve the life of Jesus? That's important. As a matter of fact, that's the bedrock of our faith, that Christ was preserved as God's sovereign plan goes through the gospel for a particular reason and particular purpose. Now, this is the good news for you and me also. Why do we need to understand that? Because we need to understand why we are here in the midst of present evil, in the midst of the real atrocities that we see in our world, in the midst of the chaos and the problems that you come face to face with every single day. 
Because for anyone who desires to follow God, I mean, really follow God, not just kind of nod your head at some of the things the preacher says. If you really want to follow God, you have to answer the question of the paradox of the existence of evil and the existence of God. Because if you don't, you won't live for the Lord. Because you'll be tripped up too easily, too quickly, too often. And so if you want a desire to follow God amidst the world's increasing hostility and resistance to the Christian faith, you have to have an answer to the paradox of the existence of God and the existence of evil. You want to learn that this morning? No? Okay, we can. All right, let's go. All right, let's get on here. All right, 10 verses. We have 10 verses we're going to look at, 13 through 23, and they're going to be focusing on three prophecies that point to Christ in geographical places there in the Middle East that prove that he is the coming king and the son of God. And so let's start there in verse 13. Go ahead and look at the text. In verse 13, now when they, we're talking about the wise men, right? When the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. You've been hearing a lot about the dreams that appear to Joseph and the angels that are coming to Joseph. We need to understand that these dreams are important because they emphasize the divine initiative of God in the life of Jesus through supernatural direction, okay? And so what I am saying is you shouldn't be expecting dreams every other uh, night of your life as God is uh, divinely guiding your life through dreams. What we're pointing out here is the fact that this is just how much God is intervening in the life of Christ to bring about a particular event in history, and so that's what it does. When you look at it, you're like, oh, yeah. Because when you look at this text at first value, you're like, why am I not receiving dreams? Well, because if you understand just how miraculous it is that he continues to have dreams and dreams and dreams, it continues nailing in the nail of just how important this sequence of events is. And this, isn't that what it does for you? That would be what it ought to do for you. And so here we are with, again, a Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream. And he says, rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Why Egypt? Well, there's reasons prophetically of why Egypt, but a real practical reason why they're going to Egypt, at least here on the surface level, it's a, it's a location outside of the jurisdiction of Herod. Right? If Herod's trying to kill you, you need to flee somewhere where he doesn't have authority and doesn't have the power. And so they go to Egypt, maybe perhaps Alexandria, a place that had a very large Jewish population at that time, but it doesn't, scripture doesn't particularly say where it is. And it says in the text there, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That's the whole point of the flight to Egypt. There is looming destruction coming in the life of Christ, and it is at the hands of the Edomite, Herod. And so Herod's evil has set the stage for God's sovereignty to be on display. And I want you to see that. Right? We're going to talk about the existence of evil uh, and the existence of God, that paradox. Right? We need to see even in this text that it's Herod's evil that sets the stage for the sovereignty of God to be on display. Isn't that good? You should write that at least in your notes. It's like evil sets up the, the opportunity for God's sovereignty to be on display. It's important for us. It's, it's right here in the text, and we need to apply that. We need to look at that and say, why did Herod do that? Because it was foretold in the scripture this would happen. As a matter of fact, verse 14. And he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my 
son. And so we're already seeing God's sovereignty on display, bringing things to pass, moving the pieces around to bring him glory in the midst of the existence of evil. And so when we look at this prophecy there uh, in verse 15, we look back, if you look at your notes in your Bible, it'll take you back to Hosea 11, 1. In Hosea 11, 1, uh, we have uh, the prophet Hosea uh, quoting a passage even further back in Numbers 23. But here we have the text, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So why are we going back to Hosea? Or why is Matthew going back to Hosea? Well, we need to understand the context of Hosea, don't we? Hosea 11.1 1 recounts an adulterous Israel, right? An Israel that continues turning away from faithfulness to God and continue turning away to idols. Uh, and the Bible says adultery and, and whoredom is, is what the, the image of Israel continually walking away from God. And so we see that in the book of Hosea through the prophet Hosea and his relationship with Gomer. Okay, so Gomer and Hosea, it's very popular in our culture, and you know that story at least somewhat, and you know it enough just to say that Gomer uh, and Hosea were the relationship being played out in real time that God was saying, this is you, Israel, with me. You continue running away, and I continue pursuing. You continue selling yourself out and giving yourself away, and I have been here to preserve you and love you and to purchase you. But yet, your abomination and your adultery cannot remain. But I will make a way even still for you to be mine. Right? That's, that's the, the story of Hosea, and it accounts God's history of delivering the people of Israel. Now, I just told you earlier that Hosea uses this reference from Numbers 23 and 24 because when Hosea 11 verse 1 is talking about uh, Israel uh, being called out of Egypt, what Hosea is trying to do, and what I think he does very, very well, is he continues pointing back to the faithfulness of God, right? Don't you remember, loved one, that I had taken you out of Egypt, that I preserved you, that I took you through the wilderness, that I took you through uh, the waters, and I preserved you, and I took you, and I gave you a place, and I called you mine, right? That's the, the context of why Hosea was using this verse, but we need to go to Numbers 23. Before I do that, I need a Bible. Okay, you have a, can I get a Bible? Maybe back there. Is it good for the pastor not to have a Bible up here on him? Thank you. That's my guy. Associate pastors for the win. All right. Numbers 23. Go ahead and flip open to Numbers 23. Because what we're going to see in Numbers 23 and 24 is why Hosea used this reference all along. Because Hosea 23, or sorry, Numbers 23 and 24 point to the relationship between Israel and the future Messiah. That's the reason why. Hosea is pointing us back and saying, hey, there is a time coming when uh, Israel will be faithful. Right? There is a time coming, and it's not now, but there is a time coming in the future where that will happen. And so Hosea is taking them back to Numbers to say, remember the prophecies. Remember Balaam's oracles. And that's what we're going to look at in Numbers 23. So flip to Numbers 23 and go ahead and look at Numbers 23, uh, chapter, verse 21. You remember that we previously in the sermon series already talked about Balaam's oracles. You remember that? We talked about it when it came to the wise men who were uh, 
prophesying the prophecies from Numbers already when he said, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And that's the star that we looked at that the wise men would have followed to Jerusalem because that scepter and that leader had, had risen up in the land of Israel, the king to come. Now, it only makes sense that we go back to Numbers and understand, just like ancient Israel understand, that Numbers 23 and 24, the oracles of Balaam, uh, at least two to three of the four, were messianic prophecies. They were prophecies that were pointing forward to a coming king who would be uh, a faithful Israel, a faithful king. Now, I want to show you that and show you why Hosea used Numbers 23 and 24. The first one there in 23, in verse 21, it says there in verse 20, Behold, I received a command to bless. If you remember, King Balak wanted uh, Balaam to curse Israel and curse him and curse him, but yet uh, God intervened and caused Balaam to only bless Israel over and over and over again. And he says, I have received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. I want, you, I want you to understand the pronouns here that he's using in the second oracle. The Lord their God is with them. right? And the shout of the king is among who? What does it say there? Them. Or we're talking about Israel. We're talking about the people. right? We're talking about the nation of Israel. God brings who? What does it say there? Them out of Egypt. And it's for them like the horns of a wild ox. And so we see that in that oracle of Balaam that God was faithful to Israel. That God was faithful to him just like Hosea was saying, right? The same parallel. Now I want you to pay attention to something. Now go to the next oracle. Chapter 24. Look at the next oracle there in verses 7 through 9. Uh, then we're talking about, at least in verse 5, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob. Okay, so now we know we're talking about Israel. Your encampments, O Israel. Like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted. Uh, he's, he's foretelling of the fruitfulness of Israel, of how God has provided for them, and they become a fruitful people. But, but let's keep reading. It says in verse 7, water shall flow from, what's that pronoun? His. We were talking about the pronouns them a minute ago, weren't we? But now the pronoun has changed in the next oracle, and it says his buckets. Listen to this. And his seed. Does that, is that familiar to anyone? Right? The seed, the message of the seed that goes throughout Scripture, the seed of woman that will come and that will redeem their people, that the Messiah. Here it is. We're already reading it again here uh, in uh, Balaam's uh, oracle here in chapter 24. And listen to who this is. His seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag. So we have a king here, and he's going to have a kingdom. And his kingdom shall be exalted. God, and listen to verse 8, where they get the quote from Hosea 11.1. 1. God brings him out of Egypt. You see the parallel already that God had promised, and he did fulfilled in the Exodus, of bringing them out of Egypt. But there is also a promise here in this messianic prophecy that there is a time when the king will come and God is going to take him out of Egypt and he will be a faithful king. Right? And he will be the king who has been foretold and here he is and his kingdom is going to be fruitful and abundant. 
and it is from him like the horns of a wild ox. That just, that, that the horns of wild ox is he's powerful and strong, right? That's, that's the story here. And so what we see here is these two oracles juxtaposed together, and you know in one point they're talking about Israel. But in the second part, they're talking about the king that is to come from Israel. We, we, do we see that relationship? We have to if we're going to, to understand the point of why we have Hosea 11.1 1 recounted by Matthew. And just to prove the fact that it is a him and it is a king that we're talking about, let's go back and look at that last oracle that we just talked about a couple of weeks ago in Numbers 24, 17. All right, Numbers 24, 17 is the final oracle of Balaam, and it's where we get the messianic vision of, of this. The oracle of him who hears the word of the Lord, verse 16, and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him but not now. I behold him, right, same pronoun, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead. Remember what the seed is going to do? Crush the head of the serpent. So we have already the third and fourth oracles uh, relating to one another. Uh, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. And so we understand these to be messianic prophecies that are pointing to the coming of a king who will be brought out of Egypt. Now, you may ask the question that I asked when I was studying this. Well, if Matthew wanted to make that point, why did he not just use numbers instead of Hosea 11? Isn't that a good question? Why did he not just draw us straight to numbers 23 and 24 and not bring us to what would seem to be an obscure usage of something that could be out of context because Hosea 11:1 1 is definitely talking about Israel and not talking about a particular person? Here's why. Because what Matthew wants to point out is not simply that there is a king that is going to come out of Egypt, but that king has a relationship with God the Father. Right? So what Matthew was pointing us to is when Israel was a child, I loved him and I called him my son out of Egypt. And so what Numbers 23 and 24 do is say God is faithful to Israel and there's coming a time where God will be faithful to bring a king out of Egypt. But what Hosea does that Number doesn't is gives you the relationship between the king and the son who is being brought out of Egypt. And so it relates to us both the title and the relationship of the Messiah, that he is going to be the king, and he is going to be the son of God. Amen? Do you see the relationship there? Why Matthew takes Hosea and says, it'll be the son that he will bring out of Egypt. Therefore, when we look at the, the, the narrative here of Jesus being chased by Herod, an open opponent of Jesus, Herod is being used, right? Herod's being used for the glory of God. The evil of Herod's being used to enact and initiate something that has been foretold in Scripture. And, and Jesus is recapitulating uh, in, in the book of Matthew the Exodus account and how Israel left Egypt and they were adulterous and disobedient and unfaithful through the whole period. But now we have the king, the son of God, who is in, is, is in Egypt and he comes out of Egypt and he is faithful. And he is perfect, and he is just, and he is obedient to God the Father. Right? Do you see the picture that we're drawing here, that Matthew has drawn for us, that he is the faithful, just, coming king? And instead of a rebellious Israel, we have a faithful fulfillment of an otherwise disobedient people. 
And so what we simply see is Herod being used as an open opponent of Jesus as a means to unfold the messianic prophecy of Christ being called out of Egypt. Come on, church. This is why we study scripture, right? This is why we don't just read over it and leave it aside. And that's why we, as Bible-believing Christians, understand this, and it's point number one. We expect God to use open opposition for his glory, right? Don't we? As a church, do we not expect God to use open opposition for his glory? Isn't that what we see here? When we look, oh, no, how dare he, Herod? No, God used it to fulfill his promises. And that's why when we talk about the paradox of the existence of evil and the existence of God, we have to understand it is just that, a paradox. It may seem like it doesn't make sense, but it does. And it's actually the only thing that makes sense when it comes to the existence of evil. For us to know what evil is, for us to have an objective moral understanding of good and bad, there has to be an objective moral standing of what is good. And so if we have that, we understand that the only way we can have a universal objective moral standard of good is to have God. And therefore we have God, therefore evil can exist. It's plausible, it's real. And we need to expect God to use evil in the open opposition for his glory. Can I give you two texts to prove that to you, to show you that the Bible talks about this over and over again? One we've already talked about weeks ago in the genealogy, and you can jot down Genesis 50, verse 20. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. So do you, see, do you see the paradox? Evil is happening, and it is either their fault or, or God's using it. Let's look at the text. You meant evil. God meant the evil for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't that exactly what the evil of Joseph's brothers did for Israel? It allowed Israel to have a root in Egypt for the Israel to come and incubate a nation that God would raise them up and then send them out. Isn't that the evil that God used for his glory and for his good? Can I give you another one that's far more evil? It's far more twisted and far more demented than anything you could ever imagine. Flip to Acts 2. Flip to Acts 2, verses 22 through 24. I'm not hearing any flipping. There we go. All right. There we go. Someday I'm going to say that, and it's because all the young people have laptops, and I'm not going to hear any flipping. Okay. Acts 2, 22 through 24. Here it says this, and as Peter's talking, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. That's good stuff, isn't it? And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's good. That's God. But then what? He says, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I want you to, to wrestle with that. Do you see it? This Jesus, who did all these good and perfect things, there was no one more perfect and more beautiful and more wonderful and more just than Christ. And this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? For you to, you may have a lot of debate about the word foreknowledge is, but just cover that word up for a second and just look at the one you do know. He was delivered up according to the plan of God. 
It was God's plan that the most grave evil that has ever existed on the face of the planet would happen and would accomplish a purpose that is good. And not only was it his plan, it was his plan before there were plans. That's foreknowledge. Right? Before there ever was another plan, this was the plan. Now, we're not saying that, I want you to see the relationship even in verse 23. He was delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge, but you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. We're not saying that God sins, do we? No. But we're saying that it was according to the definite plan of God that this would happen, and Jesus, God had delivered this plan to happen, and they did only what they were going to do, right? which is the culpability of man and the sovereignty of God. Man is just as culpable for that sin as you and I are culpable for the sins that we commit today. But it was also in God's sovereignty, in God's plan, in God's foreknowledge that the most evil thing that would ever happen in the world was meant to do, verse 24, God had raised them up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There is nothing more glorious, nothing that ascribed more glory to God, more praise to God than when death was defeated and the grave was overcome. There was nothing else in the history of ever that could bring more glory to God than a, a, a people made in his image who were broken, whose every day they thought and they wondered when the day is that they were going to die and they would cease and the corruptness of their flesh would, would move to death. And then when the Son of God came through the hands of lawless men and the plan and the foreknowledge of God and he'd be crucified and put in the grave and then he raised conquering death, loosening the pangs into glory to the Father. Right? What allowed that to happen? Evil. Right? It was the evil that we have to exist in. Right? The, the, you and I, the tension that we have to struggle with every day is it is often the evil in the world that leads to the glory of God. So we should expect God to use open opposition for his glory. A less evil, much less evil, but one that pricked my heart when we uh, were about to launch our church here on Easter, we, we took a group of people and we went out into the community. We invited people to church. Who went with us? You remember that? Uh, it was uh, about 24 hours later that we started getting these nasty Google reviews. Anybody remember those? Okay. Nasty Google reviews. And they were all of this slander and, and all of these things that were not true. And it all came from a person in a neighborhood who just didn't like that we were going around knocking on doors inviting people to church. And so that hurt, right? A new, new church, a uh, new, new pastor in town. The last thing that we need is a bad reputation from slanders and liars, you know? And so it really hurt me for, for days and days and days, and I really struggled with it because it didn't matter what I could do. I could not keep, keep that from happening. The only thing I could do is what, what, what Satan, what evil would want me to do, and say, you know, we're never going to go out and do that again. And I, I, I can keep that from happening ever again if we just never do it again. But then what, what ends up happening is that I, you know, studying those fake, slanderous, uh, and we know they're fake and slanderous because the person also commented on another page and said, I've created this many fake accounts and I'm going to create some more. And so we do know that it was a fake account. Uh, and so I'm saying, what do we do? And then one by one, I actually started seeing other people create five-star reviews talk about how blessed they were about our church being here and how wonderful it was that God had lit a lampstand here. And then over and over and over and over again, I started seeing more and more and more and more and more and more and more. 
And what was wonderful is Google has an algorithm to figure out fake accounts. And if you would just report the fake ones, Google will do the work to remove them for you. And so we just went in and reported the ones that we believed were false. Uh, and now, going back, almost all of them are gone, and almost all that's left is five-star reviews. Amen? All right. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't, that the, isn't that wonderful? Uh, but that wasn't even the most wonderful part. Uh, what's even cooler than that is there was testimonies of people coming to visit our church because of the bad Google reviews. Isn't that, isn't that contrary, right? Isn't that the paradox? It's like, wait, they told you not to come here and you came here anyway. Uh, and somebody told me that the person said simply because this, uh, if the world's talking about you guys that way, there must be something good going on there. And so that, using that example, right, and that illustration to show you that we need to expect for God to use the open opposition for his glory, and he did, And you need to expect that every day in your life, that God is going to use open opposition. He's going to use the evil world for the good and glory of God and for the good of his people. And we need to understand that. we got to trust that. Because you're not going to want to. Okay, you're not. I mean, I do it all the time. Every day I'm just waiting for something bad to happen. Uh, And that's what happens as your church grows. You're like, what's, you know, but it's like, you can't think that way. you got to think, no, no, no. God's going to use even the bad for his glory. And he's going to strengthen you, and he's going to conform you into his image, and he's going to mold you. But too many times, Christians, when something bad happens, we try to take the long way to get around it and not go through it. And God wants to get you through it to use you in it and to empower you to do great things for his glory. Now, this is a pastoral point, not in the text. But but that's what I want you to do. Quit trying to evade the, the conflict. Quit trying to run away from the opposition and understand that God's going to do something great through the opposition in your life, especially when it comes to the Christian faith. God doesn't, God doesn't want to create no conflict with the Christian faith. God wants to use the Christian faith to create conflict so people can see that there is a, definitely a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Now, there's ways in which you should handle that appropriately, with compassion, with care, but it's with boldness and trust that God is going to do something great. Open opposition, it shouldn't deter you from faithfulness, which is my concern with our church. I I never want, when open opposition comes to you, that it would deter you from faithfulness. As a matter of fact, it should do the other. It should be like, oh, this sounds par for the course for the Christian faith. And that's why it's important to go to a church that's preaching the word of God and preaching the, the the idea and the reality of open opposition because we deal with that. Uh, and when you don't go to a church like that and they teach you that they're, you know, it's, it's not God, it's, it shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't have that. Opposition is not God's will for your life. This is or this is. But we, we miss the whole understanding of the Bible that says open opposition is the theme of the gospel. Right? It actually, open opposition should confirm the realities of genuine Christianity. Right? And I, I tell you that if you are experiencing genuine Christianity, you will have 100% dealt with open opposition. And if you're not dealing with any open opposition whatsoever, you need to start asking yourself, am I living biblical Christianity or am I living a Christianity that I have created or somebody has given me, they have exported it or imported it and created me a gospel that isn't biblical? Because here's what the biblical gospel tells me, because Jesus tells me in John 15, 20. He says in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Mm, that's the truth, isn't it? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. And that's the relationship you and I have to Christ. And if he had to deal with open opposition, you and I will have to look at open opposition. Well, that is the first prophecy, or the first reality of dealing with the problem of evil and the existence of God. Let's go ahead and look at the second prophecy 
there in Matthew 2, starting verses 16 through 18. Look at verse 16 in Matthew 2. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. Well, of course he did. What does evil often do when God wins? They get furious. They start making bad Google ads. No. Anyway, I'm over it, I think. Uh, <laughs> and he sent and, and killed all the male children in, in Bethlehem and all of that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Uh, just a little side note, this is why we believe that Jesus was a toddler and not an, not an infant, right? Because uh, he, Herod went and killed all of the children who were at two years uh, or, or under, according to the time that was ascertained by them from the wise men. And so what he said is, here's when you guys are telling me that the stars showed up and, and where things are going down, and here's how many years ago that is, so here's how old the children would be. But just in case, I'm going to take it from there down. And so probably Jesus was, was a toddler at this point. And so what I would just tell you is just you need to replace baby Jesus with toddler Jesus in your nativity this year. If you want to be biblically accurate, right, it's toddler Jesus in the nativity. And so he may need to be like, you know, holding a stick, you know, playing with a donkey, something like that. All right, not in, not, not being held, okay, too big. All right, and so we have, we have him ascertained by the wise men uh, that this would happen, that this atrocity would happen. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The hard thing about prophecy is uh, Matthew is saying something to people who very much understand a lot of the Old Testament, experts in the Old Testament. They, were, they grew up knowing this. And not like you and I who grew up going to Sunday school every once in a while in vacation Bible school. No, no, no. They, these, these were people of the Shema, which means that when they got up, they were teaching them. When they were walking along the path, when they were eating, when they were, before they slept. This was literally everything about their lives. They knew these things like the back of their hand. As a matter of fact, part of it, the reason in tradition you actually see Orthodox Jews with uh, parts of Scripture wrapped around their arms and their foreheads because they took it literally. And so you and I don't walk around with the Bible on our arms and our foreheads, uh, but these people knew the Bible that much, okay? And so we understand that Matthew was talking to people who knew exactly what he was talking about. So when we read texts like this, uh, when Jeremiah was prophesying, uh, there was fulfilled by this prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah. What does that mean? Weeping and loud lamentation? Okay, I get that. Rachel weeping for her children. I thought Rachel was dead. What are we doing with her in Matthew chapter 2? She refused to be comforted. Well, okay, because they are no more, right? It, it can be a little convoluted for you and I who don't often have a lot of the context of the Old Testament and how this was fulfilled. But here's simply what you need to understand. Who, who was Rachel? Jacob's wife, right? So Jacob, who was given the name Israel, by God, is the husband of Rachel. So therefore, Rachel became the personified mother of Israel. And so the reason why Rachel is brought up here is because Rachel uh, is the personification or, or the representative of Israel, of the people of Israel, the mother of Israel. And so contextually, during the divided kingdom in the Old Testament, which we talked about, remember? Remember when I told you you have to understand the Old Testament? And that's why we took a long time to go through the genealogy, because it all points back to, as an affirmation of what God was doing in the Old Testament. During the divided kingdom in the Old Testament, Ramah, which was a city, and this city was a village north of Jerusalem. Okay, You just need to know, north of Jerusalem, there was this village called Ramah. 
And what was special or infamous, if you will, about this town in Ramah was this, that it was the place during the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivities that the Jews were brought as they were taken into captivity. So Ramah uh, to a, a Jew or to an Israelite isn't a place of great joy. It's a place of great mourning, a place of great loss, a, great, a place where mothers and sons were torn apart, a place where there was much lamentation. And so here we are, uh, in taking back to this place, Ramah, uh, where the Assyrians and Babylonians have taken and separated whole families. Therefore, Rachel, right, the mothers of Israel, were, were weeping and mourning. And so in the same way, in Rachel and Matthew, is just this personification of mothers in Israel who are weeping, not because their children were taken to captivity, but because their children were ripped from their arms and they were murdered and separated from them. Right, we had the evil of Assyria and Babylon. Now we have the evil of Rome through Herod has once again brought weeping to the land. Now we know, again, we're talking about evil in the existence of God, but we're talking about evil of the utmost all throughout the text here. And and we understand, we've talked already a little bit about how evil Herod was, right, biblically. Uh, But just so you know, it's not just the Bible that paints Herod as, as as an evil, atrocious figure and leader. As a matter of fact, in Josephus, in his work, The Antiquities of the Jews, he was an historian of that time. He wasn't a Christian historian. He was just an historian that time for Rome. And this is what he had to say. As for Herod, he slaughtered his sons. And he also brought out 300 of his officers that were under an and accusation. Did you hear that? They were just under an accusation. What is that accusation? Who knows? Something I'm sure that Herod made up. And also, Taro and his son, and the barber that accused him. I mean, he's like throwing people's like vocations out there in here. Right? And, and before an assembly, he brought them before an assembly and accused them, and he brought the accusation against all 300 of them, whom the multitude stoned with whatsoever came to hand, and thereby slew them. Right? I mean, this is the man Herod was. I mean, he k- killed his sons, he killed his wives, right? he killed people indiscriminately. Right? We have this evil, atrocious leader, but we have him in Scripture, and we have then God, who we say that we believe in, but yet we have the real evils juxtaposed against his life, and therefore we have the paradox of evil in the existence of God. This is why so many people say, I can't believe in a God because there's so much evil in the world. And on, as a Christian, right, is anyone who actually is just... Logical, if you really look at the logic and look at the, the general principles of uh, ontology and existence uh, and the realities that we live in, there cannot be evil if there is not God. Because if there is no God, there is no evil. It's just what your thoughts are about evil. Which now you get to things like postmodernism, don't you? Now you understand why people think the way they do. Well, that's good for you, but not for me. Right? That's evil for you, but not evil for me. Right? With no God, there is no objective moral standard for good. Therefore, if there isn't, you can't tell me what is evil, and I can't tell you what's evil. The problem is this logic only goes so far, because even with the most postmodern person in the world, you're going to find that they want you to agree with them on what evil is and what evil isn't. But you can't, at least in their worldview. But in our worldview, we can, because we believe in objective moral standard for good. Amen? All right. But we understand this foremost, so the problem of evil is why Christ came. Can we at least agree with that? We understand that Christ came to deal with sins. Not for me, that's what Hebrews says, Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's why he came, to be offered once for the sins of many, for the evil of the world, 
will appear a second time. He's coming back. It's a promise. It's a hope that we hold on to as Christians, not to deal with sin, because he's done that, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Right? Isn't that the gospel in a nutshell? He saved you from your sins. He's coming back for you. Now, we have to understand that's, that's the, the Christ that we serve, and this is the tension that we live in, or the problem of evil and the existence of God. Because what you're going to have is you're going to have the objection, like I've said over and over again already, that if, if there's evil in the world, I can't believe in God. But evil doesn't discount God. It proves that there is a God. And it affirms the necessity of the incarnation of Christ. I said this in a podcast, especially when the atrocity of the shooting that happened south of here months ago at the elementary school. But here's, here's what people often do when evil happens. When evil happens, the first thing that we all want to do is say, God doesn't exist, or how could God let something so evil and so atrocious happen? Uh, but we forget that the, the logic and the moral high ground that we're standing on was a foundation that was put there by God. You're allowed to say those things are atrocious. You're allowed to say those things are evil because God said they were evil, because God had created in the fabric of creation that that was evil. If there is no God, there is no bedrock foundation for the existence of evil, only what you and your culture decide what is good and what is not. Which brings me to the next point, right? Okay, well, what if it is the culture that decides on morality and good and evil? Okay, well, then talk to me about genocide. Let's talk about it. Okay, the the most popular, famous one you know, although there are many, uh, is the genocide of the Jews in Germany. Okay, how many countries got together and said that that was the wrong thing to do. Plenty. But how could they if there wasn't a universal objective moral standard for good and evil? Because if there, if there isn't, they have no right to step in there and tell them they are not allowed to have genocide of the Jewish people. Right? If there is no objective moral standard for good, I can't go to that country and tell them they're wrong because they can look at me with a uh, subjective moral standard for good and say, I think it's good for us. It may not be good for you, but as long as you stay over there and I stay over here, we should be good, right? But no, because innate to the existence of humanity is an understanding at a basic level that you and I understand that there, are, there is a moral culpability of people at a basic understanding of objective standard morality. We believe that. We're allowed to call things evil and we're allowed to call things good because we have a moral lawgiver who has given us what is good and what is evil, so therefore we are allowed to make moral decisions as people, not just in our lives, but as we look across the landscapes of society in the world Therefore, we can believe in the existence of God and the existence of evil because it's the only way it makes sense. Because if it doesn't, that means that you can't tell me what evil is and I can't tell you what evil is. And if you can't tell me what evil is and I can't tell you what is evil, what is evil? There is nothing that is evil. You see the point. So the only way that we can stand for justice and stand for righteousness is to believe that there is a moral lawgiver who reigns supreme, who is using evil for good, and who has come to eradicate evil once and for all, deal with sins once, and coming back for his people. Did you see how that, that's just the basics of the gospel and Christianity? And Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But that's why I need to understand this, and it's point number two, especially in light of this prophecy is you need to understand that Christ came to deal with the problem of evil. Understand that Christ came to deal with the problem of evil. And this is where you have a leg up on the moralist, the the 
atheist moralists of the world, uh, your, your neighbors, your aunt, your uncle, your, your family, when bad things happen, it only affirms what you believe, right? Because if Christ came to deal with the problem of evil, you have an answer to the problem of evil. They do not. And so this is why when things happen in this world that are evil and that are corrupt and they're terrible, don't shrink back because how could an evil God do these things? Or how could a God who isn't evil do these things? The question that arises is, how can you say things are evil if there is no God? That's a better question, isn't it? And then the real question comes, what does God do with the existence of evil? He has come to deal with the problem. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, this is good Thanksgiving material, isn't it? All right, come on, put it in your pocket, take it with you. Christ came to deal with the problem. Jeremiah 31, just the prophecy that we just quoted, but another verse adds to that. Right? We have a voice heard in Rama, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children, and she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. It's evil. But look what else. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Can you imagine the God of the universe looking at moms in Rama saying, Weep no more. Wipe the tears from your eyes, declares the Lord. For there is reward coming for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Right? Well, really, what we look at is in this, we can, we can at least in our minds uh, define it as the bereavement before the blessing. Right? That you and I, that even them, they were, they were in sorrow and they are in bereavement and they were, they were in utter sorrow because of the evil that was before them. But there was hope coming that God was going to restore them back to where he had taken them. That he had a place promised for them that he's going to bring them back. Do you see this? It's the, it's, there's a bereavement. There's real loss. And there's real evil in the world that you and I should mourn. And you should mourn and you should mourn with those who mourn. But we don't sit in bereavement. We don't sit in loss because we know that in Christ there is no loss unless it's the loss of all things that do not lead me to Christ. And so therefore, I have bereavement before the blessing. I understand that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Do you see this? This is the hope of the gospel in the midst of present evil that Jesus is showing us all through the time of God fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament through his very life. Come on, church. But this does bring you to the culpability, not only of, of sin, which it does, but also your responsibility as a Christian. Simply this, that the more evil you are aware of, including your own, right? You are evil, I am evil. Actually, you're probably the most evil person in your own life. You deal with more evil that you create than anyone else that you're around. And so once you're aware of that, right, number one, you know there's more evil, right? Christ came to deal with the problem of evil. You're really evil, right? I'm really evil. Christ has come to deal with that problem. Right, the more I ought to see the great solution to the cross of Christ. When I continue seeing all these problems in the world, I, it should, for me, clarify the truth of the cross. The truth that Christ came to deal with sin once and for all. The gravest sin and the greatest evil that ever happened was that people put God on a cross. And the greatest good that had ever happened is that God had taken the penalty for your sin and the penalty of evil and he had put it on him. That whosoever should believe in him, that you would turn from your sins, you would place your trust in him, evil has been taken care of in your life. Sin has been eradicated. You then stand before God justified. That is why we can believe in the relationship between the existence of God and the existence of evil. Because Christ came to win the battle 
against evil. Come on. All right. We're going to go over, but I got one more prophecy. Let's address that final prophecy. And it's a difficult prophecy. Uh, and here's why. Because this is the, one of the only prophecies that I know. And it is the prophecy in Matthew, the only one that you cannot find this prophecy anywhere in the Old, in the Old Testament. Does that scare you a little bit? Does that shake you to the bottom of your core when it comes to the veracity of Scripture? When it comes to the, the infallibility of the Word of God? That Matthew can say that there's something there that we look and it's not there. We have to know what to do with that, don't we? We want to trust the Word of God. You want to trust the Word of God with me? Let's look. Verse 19. But when Herod died, we believe this is around 4 B.C., right? We don't believe. It's actually historically documented. 4 B.C. is when he died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. This is another location right outside of the jurisdiction of Herod's son, so he, Archelaus has no authority over there. Uh, and he went to live in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now that's the problem, isn't it? Because you can search the scriptures far in our canon, and you will never find one place where it tells us that Jesus is going to be called a Nazarene. Now, there are multiple places in, the, in scholarship that try to give us uh, plausible explanations. One, that uh, the word Nazareth is a lot like the Hebrew word Nisr, which is the word for branch. And if you hop over from Hebrew into the Greek, uh, you can see that relationship that it's a play on words. Of, but uh, you're expecting a lot of simple old townsfolk to you know how to take Hebrew and pop it over into Greek. And, and so, so that probably not the best explanation. Uh, or that if you take the Nazarene, it's a lot like the Nazarites, right? So it's uh, Samson was a Nazarite, and so it's, the, it's kind of telling you this story about this charismatic leader who's going to come and is going to, yeah, okay, not, not great. But it does deal with the text, doesn't it? Because you can find the word Nisr and Nazarite in the Old Testament. So it makes it pretty easy for you, doesn't it? To say, oh, okay, Nisr, Nazarite, there it is, Okay. But I believe that there is is a much better explanation uh, that requires you to understand uh, the meta-narrative of Scripture, that requires you to do a little more studying in the Word of God. Because this prophecy is what we would call a summary prophecy, right? If you read a book, uh, as Titus will be reading lots of books, I hope, uh, instead of him reading me the whole book, I want him to give me a summary of the book. And if he gives me a summary of the book, uh, he may quote a thing here and there, but really they're his words, right, that tell me what the book was about. And so when we look at this text uh, that says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be filled, that he would be called a Nazarene, what we are actually looking at is a cul- uh, really a culmination of the prophets. Do you look at that? Do you see the, plur- the plural word prophets. It's actually the only place, go ahead and look at verse 23. It's the only place in Matthew where he's not quoting a particular prophet. He's quoting the prophets, plural. So what he's doing is he's using a summary philosophy of all the prophets, that all the prophets are speaking towards this this particular kind of place that Jesus would be. And this particular place, according to the prophets, isn't a place of high esteem and high honor. Because if a king's coming to live in a place in the Middle East, where should he go? Jerusalem, 
right? He should live in Jerusalem where, where we have the, the, the throne of David, where we have the city of David. He should live there where the temple is, right? That's where the king ought to live. But that's actually not at all what we get from the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 23 says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Does that sound like a king in Jerusalem? Does that sound like a king that we would put on the throne of David? Not particularly, but this is a theme of the prophets, that all the prophets say that this coming Messiah is going to be one in which you're not going to look at and say, that's got to be the one. That's definitely the one. And so when you're thinking of first century Israel, where are you going to put a king that people aren't going to esteem? You're going to put him in Nazareth. Why are you going to put him in Nazareth? Let me, t- let me t- take you to this text, John 1. 43 through 46. John 1, 43 through 46. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets, right, the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. The, the Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, okay. The son of Joseph. Okay. And Nathaniel said to him, which is the right response, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, that, right, that's, that's what the prophets are wanting us to do, is say, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And we say, yes. God, the king, who is coming from a place that people don't esteem, And he's come from a place that people look down upon. And he will come out of there and he will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? Come on, church. Isn't this great? Come on. This is is prophecy coming alive. All right. And it's point number three. Just put this on your outline this way. You need to recognize that God uses people, places, and things. Those are also known as nouns, right, in class. Uh, Recognize that God uses people, places, and things for his redemptive purposes. And what I want you to see here throughout these prophecies is, in in large part, these are geographical apologetics. Remember, we talk about that a lot. Uh, Geographical apologetics. Matthew is pointing at key places on the map to say these things prove and further identify Jesus as the king who is coming. And so we need to understand that God is using people, places, and things for his redemptive purposes, right? Not that these things are the ends, right? Nazareth isn't the ends of God's plan. Herod wasn't the ends Mary and Joseph, they weren't the ends of those things. Egypt wasn't the ends. They were a means in which Christ is elevated and Christ is magnified that God may be glorified. Now, here's the good news with that, is that God has placed you and me, people, right, people. He has placed us in a place, in a geographical location somewhere with things galore, Right? Everything that we have, we have so many things. I think Ariel, the mermaid, says about a lot of little things and these things and those things. Like we have so many things that God has a plan for his redemptive purposes, and all you gotta do is recognize that God wants to use you and the place you are and the things that you have for his glory and for the good of the people who live in this world. Now let me let me tell you this. Let me flip you to one more scripture. Acts 17. 
Acts 17, 26 through 27. I want you to understand that when you leave here, that God has not left you here with no purpose. That God has left you here with a great purpose. That we, although that we live in the real tension between the existence of evil and the existence of God, God has placed you here for a purpose to help people understand the relationship and the paradoxical nature of the existence of evil and the reality of a God who loves you. Here it is. Acts 17, 26 through 27. And he, that is God, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Can you believe that? That you live in New Braunfels, Texas right now or here in the metro area for a particular purpose that God has placed you here. You didn't move yourself here. God moved you here. God put you here. That they, verse 27, that they, that people should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The way that you ought to think about where you live and what you're doing should radically change given the truth of Scripture. That God said this, he has allotted periods of time and boundaries of your geographical locations of your dwelling place for one reason. He could have said whatever he wanted after this. He said one thing that people would come to know him. You live where you live, you have what you have, and you're doing what you're doing because God wants to use you for people to come to know him, period. That is it. And so that's why you need to understand that who you are, the people you're around, the places that you live, and the things that you have and the things that you are doing exist for one purpose, and that is for people to come to know God through you, through what you do, and through what you have. And that's why we talk about worship over the past few weeks as simply this. Everything you do is worship because everything you are and everything you do and everything you have should point to Christ and give glory to the Father. Simply this way, it's you in Christ, right, saved by his grace, enlisted as his ambassador or a part of God's redemptive plan for history. Right? You're not the ends of God's redemptive plan, sorry to inform you. You're not the ends of it. You're, you're a means, you're a conduit in which God is more glorified. You're a conduit in which God uh, is using for other people to come to know him. Right? And I want you to see that God uses these cities and these people to bring glory to the Son. And really, I hope when you, when you leave here, you're like, why not me? Like, why not you? Why, why, why not you? Why not you be a conduit of the grace of God to extend in this community for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why not you? Why not me? I know why evil it can coexist with a good God. I have the answer to that. My pastor just told me and used scripture. I now have some good tools. Why not me? I can tell people about this truth. I can tell people about the gospel. Why not me? Why not you? Why not compass? Let's pray. God, help us, God, as we truly do see the relationship between the existence of real evil uh, and the existence of an all-loving, majestic God who's created the heavens and the earth for his glory. God, help us, uh, God, even as we, we leave here, God, help us not just apply it, God, because we ought to, but, but believe it and trust it, that we aren't uh, taken aback, God, that we aren't uh, in so many ways, afraid or timid to neglect or reject the realities that are before us, but because we believe that all truth is your truth, and the truth is that there is evil, and the truth is that you are also here, that these things can be reconciled. And because those things can be reconciled, we can use them to help reconcile people to you as we are your ambassadors. 
And so God, help us as we looked at the, the, the birth narrative of Christ, as we looked at these four sermons side by side to see how you use things for your redemptive purposes. God, how nothing is left unused to bring you glory. God, we just pray that this sermon that changes the way that our church thinks and looks at the realities that are before us and, and both our purpose, God, and the reality that we have to be ambassadors of Christ to the glory of you. So help us even as we finish worship now. In Christ's name, amen.